Welcome to In Discussion and the Heroes series with creator Dr. Susan Anthony. She was recently quoted, we need another hero generation. And she has a powerful idea for many of the interviews where she underpins the questions in her series with the archetypal themes of finding the hero within. After all, this is what her work is all about. She has invited people onto the hero series with her because they have had the courage to make the sacrifices and take risks necessary to inspire the listenership to look inside and find their best selves and to do something to make our world a better place. Our special guest today, Dr. Brian O'Leary, is a scientist philosopher with 50 years of experience in academic research, teaching and government service in frontier science and energy policy. He was also a NASA scientist astronaut during the Apollo program, the first to be selected for a planned Mars mission and participated in unmanned planetary missions as an Ivy League professor. Over the past four decades, he's been an international author, speaker, peace activist, founder of nonprofits, an advisor to progressive US Congress members and presidential candidates. In his latest book, The Energy Solution Revolution, he describes the enormous potential of breakthrough clean energy technologies, their suppression and their logical necessity for our survival. Zero point, vacuum energy, cold fusion and advanced hydrogen and water chemistry could provide us all an abundant future for all of humanity. In 2004, he and his wife, the artist Meredith Miller, moved to the Andes in Ecuador, where they co-created Montesuenas, an eco-retreat and educational center dedicated to creativity and the rights of nature. Dr. Brian O'Leary joins Dr. Susan Anthony in this first of four programs on the Hero Series. Welcome today to In Discussion and the Hero Series and our special guest, Dr. Brian O'Leary. Dr. Brian O'Leary, Dr. Susie Anthony, welcome to you today. Thank you. It's good to be back. And welcome, Brian, from England. Well, thank you. And hello, David and Susie. And I wish I could say it was sunny England. However, <laughs> it's been pouring with rain today. But it's still beautiful. Let me start with this very special program on our special guest, Susie, Dr. Brian O'Leary. Dr. Brian O'Leary, astronaut and scientist, is a scientist philosopher with 50 years of experience in academic research, teaching and government service in frontier science and energy policy. He was a NASA scientist astronaut during the Apollo program and the first to be selected for a planned Mars mission and participated in unmanned planetary missions as an Ivy League professor. Over the past four decades, Dr. Brian O'Leary has been an international author, speaker, peace activist, founder of nonprofits, and advisor to progressive U.S. Congress members and presidential candidates. His latest book, The Energy Solution Revolution, describes the enormous potential of breakthrough clean energy technologies their suppression, and their logical necessity for our survival. Zero-point vacuum energy, cold fusion, and advanced hydrogen and water chemistry could indeed provide us all an abundant future for all of humanity. 
In 2004, he and his wife, the artist Meredith Miller, moved to the Andes in Ecuador, where they co-created, and Brian, I never know how to pronounce this, I always call <laughs> it Montesunas. <laughs> Montesuenos. <laughs> an eco-retreat, an educational center dedicated to creativity and the rights of nature. And the co-creator of the Hero series, Dr. Susie Anthony, an award-winning personal development author, creator of the Hero series. In 1992, Susie's life as a cocaine-binging, jet-setting businesswoman was turned around by an incredible series of near-death experiences that took her beyond the five senses deep into the realm of soul. She now dedicates her life to marrying ancient wisdom with modern Western psychological and business success principles, providing tools for transformation and maps to evolving consciousness materials that everyone can use to overcome inner conflicts, cast out fears, and find the miracle of true love and genuine power and happiness. Susie, I would like to start with you, if I may. What do you have to say about the reasons why you created this wonderful hero series and why especially today in our world? Well, it's about teaching ordinary people to find their best selves. And Joseph Campbell called this the hero within. It's in order to acquire an overall vision of the new age of planetary super crises that's looming to find the courage to embrace the gifts of all the chaos that this age of super crisis will give to us gift to us really and along with that to participate in the birth that's taking place through this new age of super crisis and it's a birth it's a, a planetary birth and a personal rebirthing to find this hero self. And it's about teaching ordinary people extraordinary, but very practical, simple tools for finding higher purpose in their lives, to unfold their sacred, heroic mission in these times of great change and transformation. And heroes, through their mentoring and training, know the role of personal shadow in their development. Heroes have been mentored to identify and appreciate the role of society's collective shadow in the work necessary for both, as I've already said, collective and personal transformation. And heroes also know that in order to embrace the higher coherent brain states where the level of consciousness really where solutions to this planetary super crises age can be accessed that we can only do this by reconnecting to the divine feminine and when you become a hero you participate not only in the preservation of humanity but in the humbling and amazing transfiguration it's destined for and what we're being asked to do is not to fix the existing system, which is broken, but to radically transform it so that we no longer by our choices threaten our lives and the lives of millions of species. And we can only do this by radically transforming ourselves. And as I 
I say on the website, we, we really, really, really have to understand that history right now is presenting all of us with a powerful and unique choice point. In ignorance, in separation from spirit, the hero inside, if you like, we've created a culture of distraction. We haven't been able to see the global writing on the wall. We're entering a new age of planetary super crisis. We have all kinds of planetary emergencies on our hands in terms of climate crisis, financial crisis. We have to find a way to create in everyone alive today a sense of generational mission. And it's my deepest and most profound wish that the Hero Series will help accomplish this by showing people how to embrace what I term as conscious mythical living. And this I agree with world-renowned author and psychiatrist Dr. M. Scott Peck is simply achieved through learning to function using both hemispheres of the brain, something Einstein and other great genius knew about and mastered. David, as you know, I teach this at the Manor House. We live this on a daily basis. It's not easy, but it is simple. And Reiki is very much key to achieving all of this. My other deepest wish is that listeners can truly appreciate the value of staying with us each month, David, so that they begin to become extremely familiar with all the different yet similar wisdoms, both ancient and modern, which are unlocking the mysteries of the mind-body-spirit complex. This is really and truly pioneering radio programming. It's never been done before, David. What do you think? It's very powerful, and I resonate very clearly with that statement on the radio programming, Susie, it is becoming very evident. And I hope, Brian, maybe you could comment on this, that radio and the voice and the sound and the calmness and the pragmatism, proving that there is a way through the chaos, as the Hero series certainly does prove, is such a hugely powerful combination. Is that something that you see occurring here, Brian? Absolutely, David. I, I'm just uh, uh, just honored to be uh, on this show with you both uh, because you're both incredibly articulate about describing the problem and what needs to be done. And there are solutions, but it takes courage to embrace the solutions and present them. And there's probably no better format right now than the magic of the Internet and Skype to be able to present this to the world. Just uh, tickled that, that we're here on this program together. Having listened to some of our programming, and in particular Susie's own hero's journey, would you agree with this and what inspired you yourself to come on to the Hero series and bear all? Because that is what I'm seeing now, understanding that Susie has been my teacher for many, many months and realizing through that teaching that there is a necessity to go through the pain, display the pain, go through what Susie 
defines as the breakdown to break through. How do you see that resonating through the structure of the Hero series? Well, I see it resonating very well. Um, and in fact, everything you're doing, David, uh, I, I'm just amazed at the uh, the focus and diligence with which you've you've uh, been putting these programs together and bringing people together that. Uh, they really should be talking with one another, and we don't. Many of us who are uh, are in the public eye and have uh, done a lot of pioneering work, now it's time for us to come together. It's time for us to become more aware uh, of our own life's paths and what uh, how that can be uh, uh, expressed to other people who are also seeking to uh, get outside the box and do something a totally new and, and something that is uh, obviously against the grain um, of the cultural norm and the vested interests on our planet right now. I do believe it's important at this juncture to recognize that mentoring that I have received from Susan Anthony. The Hero series has played into very much this programming and in discussion. The co-creation has been quite amazing in recognizing the principles from the Heroes series that have played such a huge part in the overall structure of this. With all that said, Susie, would you like me to officially start the 12 stages of the Heroes journey today? with Brian O'Leary. Yes, let's go for it. I can hardly wait. I've been so looking forward to this program. And thanks again, Brian, for coming here and having the courage to really tell your life story and instead of in a dry way, mixing it, weaving it into the magic of this map and bearing your soul. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Susie. It's a pleasure. Let's start with the hero's journey and its 12 stages as created by Susan Anthony. We start with the first stage, the ordinary world. And this is the hero's normal world before the story begins. And Brian O'Leary, like Susie, you both share the same reticence for the ordinary world and the ordinary life. But do tell us something very briefly about your very early ordinary years, how you developed such a powerful interest in space exploration culminating in 1967 when you were appointed as a NASA scientist astronaut. Well, yes, David, uh, it, 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 uh, it, it was definitely uh, something from a higher source uh, that inspired me and uh, uh, it, it was definitely not even an ordinary world. It was an ordinary world um, in the context of the larger culture later. But uh, when I was eight years old, I went to Harvard College Observatory. This was in 1948 on the night that uh, uh, Truman upset Dewey for the uh, presidency of the U.S. And I distinctly remember looking at Mars through a telescope. And I exclaimed to everybody around me, I want to go there. And uh, people around me kind of chuckled. Uh, there was no space program then. And uh, I, 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 just, I, I just had a single-minded purpose that I wanted to go into space, explore space, 
and find out what these planets were all about. Uh, was there life there? Th that, to me, was the hugest question that I could ever imagine asking. But everybody thought I was crazy. Uh, in high school, in the spring of 1957, I was asked to write an essay on an important temporary topic. And so um, uh, I, I wrote mine in space satellites. And uh, the teacher handed it back to me saying, well-researched but not relevant. Well, the following fall, Sputnik went up and 12 short years later, man went to the moon. Uh, so I, it, it was one of those situations where I somehow caught the vision and also caught the wave. In a way, I was very fortunate uh, to do both because then I was able to build up a career which, uh, which actually turned out to be a relatively ordinary career compared to what happened later. Uh, so, uh, for, for many, many decades, I was involved in various aspects of, of uh, space exploration, space science. I remember when I was a kid growing up in England, you know, and I can remember one Christmas receiving a Meccano set and building a, a space capsule. I don't know when that was. It must have been in the late 60s. And this is the real power and glory stuff, the real boy's own adventure that most people like myself only dream of, and yet you did make it real. Just what was it like when you, when you found this, this goal that you had so held on to became real? Well, it, it, uh, it obviously felt quite exhilarating. Uh, the, my actual appointment to the astronaut program, by that point, I was um, getting increasingly interested in the science part of things and, and exploring the planets for what we're going to find out there, especially the question of life. And so by then I had become sort of conditioned to focus on the scientific aspect. And my thesis advisor, who was one of my... Uh, uh, I think true mentors in life advised me against going into the astronaut program. He he wanted me to just stick with the science and not get into uh, uh, piloting and that kind of thing. But I went into it nevertheless. And uh, but I went into it rather casually. Actually, some of the other candidates were so in, intent on getting selected, uh, and they seemed to have all the right stuff. They they already were pilots. I wasn't. Uh, in fact, I wasn't all that interested in flying. And uh, some of the physical exams, we had a week long of uh, the world's most thorough uh, physical medical exam. Uh, a lot of the people were very nervous about it, and I wasn't. I was kind of laid back because I knew I, I had an alternative that after my PhD I could go and have a postdoc somewhere. And so I, I really wasn't all that intent on being selected. Uh, but when I was, I was uh, delighted. It, it looked like it was the right thing to do then, and that was back in 1967. Susie's your thoughts on that? God, well, awesome stuff. I mean, I'd like to talk to the power of creation, how we are creators, but most of us have forgotten that. But Anatoly France said, to accomplish great things, we must not only act, but also dream, not only plan, but also believe. And the wisdom here is about how our beliefs create how we experience our world. And our, our world can be special or altogether extremely ordinary, dull, depending on how conscious we are, how powerful, how unselfish we are, or indeed are not. And 
hearing you as an eight-year-old child at Harvard declaring that you'll be going to Mars, it just really spiked in me other amazing men who made similar declarations and then achieved them. And I just really like to briefly talk to them so that listeners really understand energy follows thought. And providence, to quote the famous Goethe poem, moves heaven and earth to manifest our childhood dreams. You became a NASA scientist. You became an astronaut. This is incredible stuff. But I wonder if listeners know about... Thomas Schliemann, who at age eight, this must be a crucial age, but at age eight, having heard the stories of Troy and Homer's Iliad, he declared he'd find Troy. And coming from a very poor, humble background, he went on to become fabulously wealthy, courtesy of the California gold rush, and always seeming somehow just to be in the right place at the right time. And he did go on to discover Troy. And then there's the story of Champollion, Jean-Francois Champollion, who as a young teenager similarly declared he would decipher the Rosetta Stone. And by age 20, again, despite an impoverished background, he became a linguistic prodigy. He mastered Hebrew, I think, Arabic, Syriac, Coptic, Greek and all Latin all by the age of 19 back in 1821 by using the Rosetta Stone and other inscriptions along with his mastery of Coptic language he did in fact decipher the Egyptian hieroglyphics so how could anybody David dare to disagree with me that energy does follow thought it's amazing <laughs> stuff Ryan, when Susie talks about the supreme nature of energy and how we can utilize that for an incredible outcome, isn't this principle fundamental to guaranteeing the most positive outcome for clean energy processes such as cold fusion? Susie shared with me that she heard from a scientist involved in these experiments that if their projections about results and negatives, so are the results. Do our thoughts, Brian, really affect the process? Absolutely, David. And um, as you know, in some of uh, the uh, excellent broadcasts that you've, you've held uh, over the past uh, several weeks with Bill Tiller and a number of other uh, scientists, uh, fellow scientists in, in this field of consciousness research, have come up uh, the, with the result that beyond any reasonable doubt, and it's experimentally verifiable now using very rigorous Western scientific methods, that our intention can literally create results in the material world. Uh, we can, through our intention, purify water, for example. We can heal. We can heal ourselves. We can heal one another. And even though I was later to discover in my life that these things uh, that were now scientifically verifiable were also open to our experience in our own lives. Uh, and, and so absolutely, we can create energy out of the vacuum of space simply 
through our intention or through modifying an experiment and preparing the space of the experiment to make it so that everything is, is in, in harmony and then we can move ahead and develop these new energy sources. Uh, does this sound impossible? Absolutely not. And I've become increasingly convinced of that now uh, with the 2020 hindsight, uh, having been on the planet now for 71 years, um, I can really see the uh, huge potential of this and hopefully just in the nick of time to avoid a global uh, disaster and collapse. I've been on the planet for 48 and it feels like 3,000. Um, <laughs> Susie, your response to that, it's an amazing statement and collectively statements that you're both making. This dreaming to make this a reality, this huge consciousness that we're building, it really is becoming real, is it not? It truly is. And I mean, every day at the Manor House, we create a conditioned space, which, which is what Brian was just describing, through attention and intention, through ritual, through repetition of affirmations, we actually create a conditioned space. And through practicing mindfulness and mastery over our mental and emotional fields, over our thoughts and feelings, we pour love into that conditioned space. And miracles abound. It's quite incredible. I can vouch for that also here at Motosuenos, our uh, retreat center that Meredith and I founded. Um, it's just one miracle after another is happening here. It's a, it's a precious magic place. And the people that come here really pick up on that energy. And we have all kinds of synchronicities happening. It's, it, it, there's no question that this is very real. And it's the, the way we, I, we're going to have to proceed in order to to move into the the new paradigm before it's too late absolutely i was just giving the team here a pep talk the other day about finances and i said you know as long as we all stay aligned and as long as our space is kept clear and we're coming from love respect honor peacefulness and focused on the greatest good of the whole i said you know we don't have to worry about money. People will just knock on the door and give us money. And 30 seconds later, there was a knock on the door. And this couple had been walking past the house for yonks and admired it and loved it. And they said, do you guys rent rooms out? Because we're having a gathering and we'd like five rooms for four nights. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was incredible. And stuff like that happens all the time. When you're in the Tao, when you're in this conditioned space, when you're conscious, awake and aware. I am going to personally set that intention right now. Good. Good. Yeah. That takes us into the second stage, the call to adventure. And my goodness me, is this resonating today. The hero is presented with a problem, challenge or adventure. And once presented with a call to adventure, the hero can no longer remain indefinitely in the comfort zone of the ordinary world. My goodness. The call to adventure establishes the stakes of the game and makes clear the hero's goal.
to right a wrong, achieve a dream, or change a life. Brian, in 1968, you retired from the astronaut program due to the Vietnam conflict. And obviously, you went through some kind of crisis of conscience, which Susie feels signified your calling to the hero's adventure. You had to step out of the illusion of the comfort zone of the system in order to honor your own sacred truth. How difficult was it to make this decision to turn your back on all the material power and glory at NASA? And how did you find the courage to achieve that? Well, um, I was in flight school and um, learning to fly jets, which I think was, was a mundane catalyst uh, to quitting. But the, the real reason was that Lyndon Johnson, uh, who was president at the time, came and spoke to the astronauts and basically said that um, the, the later Apollo programs and the Mars program would be canceled. So um, I did some, some soul-searching while in flight school. It was a very difficult decision, but I decided to quit. And uh, so I tendered my resignation. I was the first of all the astronauts to resign. And, uh, yeah, I guess you could call that the call to adventure. It was a call to a different kind of adventure than the one that would uh, bestow fame and glory. Uh, and as soon as I let go of what I didn't want, uh, the phone was ringing off the hook. I, I got a call from Carl Sagan, who at that time was a professor at Cornell University, and invited me to join the Cornell faculty in planetary science, which was the field of my PhD anyway. And so, in a sense, that was a call to adventure. And there were many calls since then, which took several risks, and risks that I was increasingly becoming comfortable about being willing to take. So, indeed, that was a very uh, big milestone in my life when I quit the astronaut program. Susie, can you talk to the similarities there with this particular stage of Brian's journey? Well, I can. I mean, the person that you flag up to me, the similarities are, are it's Dr. Daniel Ellsberg. And he was a Harvard graduate of economics who went to work in the Pentagon in the early 60s, around about 64, I think, under Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. And he was actually on duty the evening of the now infamous Gulf of Tonkin incident, which caused the USA to declare war on Vietnam. Infamous now because it didn't happen. So after serving in Vietnam, Ellsberg resumed working for Rand Corporation in California where he contributed to a top secret study of classified documents regarding the conduct of the war, a study commissioned by his boss, Robert McNamara. And by 1969, Ellsberg had undergone something of a, an epiphany attending anti-war rallies, and one in particular listening to a speech given by a young draft resistor who said he was very excited that he would soon be able to join his friends in prison. And what I gathered from listening to Ellsberg was that 
he hadn't known that he this guy was about to be sentenced for draft resistance it hit him as a total surprise and shock because he heard his words in the, in the midst of actually feeling proud of his country whilst listening to him and then realizing that he was going to prison it wasn't what this young man said that changed his worldview. It was the example that he was setting in his life. And this is typical hero's journey stuff like your decision to, to buck the system. His words in general showed that he was a stellar American, excuse the pun, and that he was going to jail as a very deliberate choice because he thought it might be the right thing to do. By the way, uh, yeah, in, in my own case, the day I decided to quit the astronaut program, it's such a release of energy that not yeah. only uh, uh, provided the opening to go to Cornell uh, and, and take a professorship there, but also on that very day I quit the program, I can definitely chart it. Um, uh, my ex-wife and I, who had tried for many years, were able to conceive a son uh, who's just a very fine, healthy 42-year-old now. And uh, also, I became one of the lead war protesters of the of the war in Vietnam, <laughs> and and that all happened just almost as soon as I left the program. Ellsberg went through the same kind of thing, from what I can gather. He felt the fear, but he did what was right, and he blew the whistle in a patriotic way. I truly believe, and the rest is history. And it's also a great film, by the way, David, with James Spader, The Pentagon Papers. And Daniel, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the Heroes series. But the wisdom behind this at this stage of the Heroes journey is, is all about the importance of honesty and standing in your truth. And heroes say what they mean and mean what they say. Ordinary people are mostly only honest when it's convenient. And honesty, I feel, is about integrity and trustworthy trustworthiness. And whilst transparency means making yourself visible so that you can be better understood. So many good and decent people, though, shy away from honesty, having to weigh the consequences of telling the truth. We all remember Enron. And employees didn't expose the people they knew were committing fraud and other criminal activities for fear of losing their jobs and wishing to stay in that comfort zone. And the cost of this to the hero inside, it's all about loss of intimacy, efficiency, and what you just described, Brian, aliveness. And obviously, of course, the trust of other people and their relationships with you. And once you tell one lie, the veracity of everything you then say is cast into doubt. Politicians, are you listening? So <laughs> every time you lie... A piece of you dies. That's what people don't understand. That's why there are so many 40 and 50-year-old zombies walking around in our world. Whereas, Brian, you came to life. These people exist, but they've given their power away to the system. They aren't really alive, and you can see it. What I admire so much about the guests on the Hero series so far, Dr. Irvin Dardick, Dr. Jude Caravan, John Perkins, and you, Brian, you bucked the system. 
you told the truth even if it hurt, even if you were afraid. And the reward has been, though, that you're truly alive and you can see you can see that in people and you can feel it too. It's true beauty. So remember, heroes anchor reality to their vision. But ordinary people anchor their vision to their reality. Tell me what you focus on and I'll tell you who you are. That's how the, wor the world works. Energy follows thought. So there's another fine example. It reminds me, Susie and Brian, of my favorite Shakespearean quote, no legacy is so rich as honesty. There is so much in that, in what you've just been talking to on that second stage. Absolutely. And that Christ, sets, the truth sets you free. It's as simple as that. It may be painful, but my goodness, you're alive and nothing compares to that. Funny, uh, I had a bumper sticker for a while that says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And at that <laughs> point, I was, I was working on a book called Miracle in the Void, and a lot of that was based on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work on the, uh, the stages of grief and death and dying. Our planet and our culture is dying, and uh, in order to deal with some of this situation, it's, it's sometimes one needs to recognize all these phases of grief, uh, from denial to anger to bargaining to depression to finally acceptance. Absolutely. Did you frame that bumper sticker, Brian? <laughs> no, but I think it's still in, in one of my old cars that's driving around Phoenix, Arizona, so if you see it, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I'll report on that. I've learned a lot through bumper stickers, by the way. <laughs> that takes us to the last stage in the program today in the series, the third stage, the refusal of the core. And this is where the hero refuses the challenge or journey, usually due to fear. And the hero is not really committed to the adventure and keeps thinking of turning back. So there's some other influence, a change in circumstances perhaps, a further offense against the natural order of things or the encouragement of a mentor is required to move beyond that fear. Brian, you left NASA and then went on to accept an invitation from Carl Sagan, as you had previously mentioned, to the Cornell faculty and enjoyed lots of faculty appointments and experiences in California. And then in 1971, 1972, you began to be conscious of environmental problems. Was this another crisis of conscience for you? Well, yes, it was, David, because uh, while I was uh, a war protester, I, 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 I left Cornell. It was another one of those leaving a secure situation but just going into another uh, uh, possibly secure situation, which were a number of faculty appointments, all of which were temporary, and where I was still kind of, kind of searching for, for my, my life's purpose, which, which still was elusive to me. Because around that time, yes, I began to become aware of the environmental problems we were having, uh, and then I made an intense study of alternative energy uh, alternative energy sources such as solar and wind and so forth and so on. I, 
I taught some of that at Hampshire College in Massachusetts in the early 70s, but um, I, I was discontent. It, it was, but I wasn't ready to break loose yet. I think the universe was telling me to break loose at that point, but I didn't. I was seeking um, security in various faculty positions. And that went on for quite a while uh, until I finally, in 1975, uh, broke loose of that and became Morris Udall's energy advisor when he ran for president in 1975, uh, which was a very interesting but just very stressful job. And that's when my marriage began to fall apart. A few other uh, personal habits were not, uh, uh, not very good. I, I was in a pressure cooker of work. And so around that time, I was uh, kind of drifting and uh, yet still not able to directly connect with what my essence about how I, I could really take part in the environmental movement in any significant way. Brian, I have to interject here, if, if I can, David. I just so honor your transparency, your shining integrity, and the courage you've demonstrated in, in helping me prepare the questions for this programming where you bravely shared with me about the monster you had to slay on your hero's journey, in your case, alcohol. And this is why I use the Oscar Wilde quote so often that every saint has a past and every sinner a future and that we grow from our mistakes. And, you know, I wonder if the alcohol helped you numb out the pain of kind of staying in the comfort zone with all the faculty positions and, and tenure. And I also would like to share for listeners who may also, you know, also have problems with alcohol. I know you eventually were able to give up, but and do tell us later in the program how you did this. But something of vast importance I'd like to add is M. Scott Peck refers to addiction as the sacred disease. And he pointed out that it occurred to psychiatrist Carl Jung that it was perhaps no accident that we traditionally refer to alcoholic drinks as spirits and that perhaps alcoholics were people who had a greater thirst for spirit than others and that perhaps alcoholism was even a spiritual disorder or better yet, just a spiritual condition. And he writes um, that addicts are people who want, who yearn to go back to Eden, who want to reach paradise, reach heaven, reach home more than most. And they're desperate to regain that lost, warm, kind of fuzzy sense of oneness with the rest of nature we used to have in the Garden of Eden. And could it be that so many of our young are having a problem with alcohol or even drugs because parents, teachers, and organized religions have neglected their spiritual needs? If religion is the school, I'm fond of saying, then spirituality is the education they forgot to give us. And also, this isn't religion bashing. There's nothing wrong or bad with religions, but just like conventional medicine, they're incomplete. What's your feeling on this? Indeed, I, I, I can tell you what happened with me was that um, the, the pressure cooker of my job in Washington was so great um, that I, I was drowning my sorrows a lot. Uh, 
I don't think it, it, it uh, oddly enough, it didn't uh, impair my job performance that much, nor uh, any jobs even later or before then, but it was more that uh, I was going through a spiritual crisis. I, I think that, that uh, people, you're right, that people that uh, are driven to drink or, or take drugs or whatever are seeking to alter their state uh, in order to seek a spirit. Uh, to speak a certain, uh, seek a certain sense of solace, and so I, I began to realize that uh, finally I landed my feet again after the Washington job at Princeton University, and did some really interesting uh, visionary work with one of my mentors, Gerard O'Neill, on space settlements during the late seventies. And uh, but it wasn't until uh, which I thought, by the way, was one way of solving our environment problems. Uh, in other words, move a lot of polluting industry into space. Uh, I truly felt that that would be a solution at that time, but that was before I became aware of other possibilities that came in later, and it was not until 1979 when I really had a crisis, a dual crisis, one being that, um, uh, one that was very positive, where I had an experience in a workshop, a uh, life spring training, where I was able to remotely view a person and I became aware that our consciousness was uh, uh, was infinite and that we could transcend time and space and and that we could build a whole new science upon that and that that came to my, uh, my awareness in 1979 uh, as a result of this experience and uh, but then I also abused alcohol once and had a violent encounter with a with, with a partner at that time which I later regret, but uh, we, we, we had a physical encounter which made me feel very guilty and ashamed and um, created really uh, a, a dark night of the soul right around the same time that I was also becoming more and more aware that uh, of our magnificent universe and that we could explore it outside of the box of traditional Western science. Well, that wow. sadly, for this first program with Dr. Brian O'Leary, brings us to the end today, and our next program will start with the fourth stage, meeting with the mentor. Having traveled through this first program, Brian, do you have any final thoughts to share before we sign off for the day? Well, I just uh, appreciate this opportunity to share personally and, and hope that it will help others uh, in their life path. Uh, I, I certainly am learning a lot along the way, lots of lessons learned. Uh, and also just want to point out that these, these stages of the journey, uh, I, I kept revisiting some of them, like the mentoring would be going on all the time as a concomitant process uh, with all of these other things. But indeed, I'd, I'd go into a new territory. The model is pretty good. I, I think Joseph Campbell is one of the most brilliant, wonderful men uh, that I know of. Um, his, his widow uh, awarded me when I quoted him once in a talk I gave at a Unity Church in Honolulu. Uh, she uh, uh, awarded me with his reading glasses, which I treasure right now. I treasure your sharing with us, Brian. And what I love is how... You, the importance of honor, and you demonstrate that. You demonstrate how you honor the people who've mentored you, and that's so powerfully important. I can't say 
It's music to my ears, and I've really enjoyed this hour, and it's gone so quickly. I'm looking forward to the next one. And thank you, David. You just hang it all together there so beautifully. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Dr. Brian O'Leary, our first program complete. Thank you so much from the heart, from both Susie and myself. This has, I resonate with Susie, been a wonderful start to this journey that you have taken. Thank you. Yeah. And Susie Anthony, thank you to you as well today. Thank you both. And it's, it's just a real pleasure. I'm loving this. I really am following my passion and in my bliss. So thank you. And to our listeners today, I do hope, we hope, that you have enjoyed this first of a series of programs with Dr. Brian O'Leary. Meanwhile, you can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. And also don't forget to visit the official Heroes website at theheroesseries.com. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.